Welcome to DAO Today, a podcast that hosts lively and challenging discussions on decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs. Alongside some experts and builders in the space, this podcast aims to promote your knowledge on everything DAO, discuss blockchain-related topics, and challenge the lack of diversity and inclusion in the industry. DAO Today podcast is hosted by Alexa Mill, aka Delexa. There is a lot to learn about DAOs as a concept, what they are, and how to build decentralized while navigating the complexities of the regulatory environment. You will have an opportunity to learn from builders, change makers, legal, compliance, and other professionals. So follow and subscribe to DAO Today with Alexa Mel, not to miss out on any episodes. I promise you will learn new things and have some fun along the way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of DAO Today with Alexa Mill. Today, we have a special guest, Ali Reza. Hi, Ali. Welcome to today's episode. I'm super happy to have you here. And would you please introduce yourself and how did you get started in the industry? Hi, Alexa. Thank you for having me today. I'm uh, very looking forward to talk to you today about uh, the Nika topic. So. Just some some insights where I'm coming from, what I'm doing. So I'm a German-based lawyer and partner of a law boutique firm called Anaton. We are focusing on regulation in the industry of banking, financial companies, but also fintechs. And I'm a partner dealing with regulatory for more than 10 years. And I'm dealing with blockchain and DLT already for some time, since 2014. Uh, and this is also one of my main topics I'm dealing with. So everything which is related to DLT and blockchain. So helping yeah, German banks, asset managers, but also um, the crypto native industry like crypto exchanges, startups which deal with NFTs, for example, um, companies which tokenize non-bankable assets. And yeah, besides being a lawyer in the law firm, I'm also quite active in associations. Um, I was for a long time a board member of the European Commission's Blockchain Association in Atba, where I was also helping drafting the first draft of the Mika text. I was for a long time helping the German government as an expert implementing the EU regulations such as the fifth anti-money laundering directive into German law, helping uh, understanding of crypto assets and the yeah, regulated services we have in Germany, like the crypto asset service uh, um, provider and um, yeah and um, now also I'm continuing that uh, with uh, helping the industry and I'm also quite active in publishing so I'm publishing a lot on, on crypto assets such as the Mika uh, but also the new German law and the electronic securities which we have and yeah I think that gives a good insight of what I'm doing and uh, what I'm going to do and uh, as I said I'm very happy today to talk to you about Mika and uh, so let's go into it. Amazing. And thank you for taking the time to come on and discuss this very important topic that will not only affect EU, but businesses globally. Would you please uh, break down to us like what Mika actually is and why does it matter? Yeah, so Mika stands for the Markets and Crypto Assets Regulation. And for those who are familiar with regulation, they see that it looks similar to MIFID, the Markets and Financial Assets Directive. So, um, and this is uh, the first thing which we need to understand. We have the Mika, which is the regulation of crypto assets. 
and we have the MIFID, which is the regulation of financial instruments. But this is the first, I think, yeah, nutshell we should take away. Um, but for those who are interested in the, how the Mika was created, we have to look back a little bit just. We have to look back at uh, 2019 uh, because we had the EBA, the European Banking Authority, and ESMA, the European Securities Markets Authority, who published two very interesting papers at the same day. Uh, they are both called uh, Advice on Crypto Assets. Um, the ESMA, they uh, highlighted in their paper at that time that within the European economic area, we do not have a harmonized understanding about crypto assets. So, for example, Germany is regulating cryptocurrencies and many utility tokens already since 2014 because Germany was the first um, jurisdiction and the German regulator, the BaFin, was the first regulator globally which issued uh, its understanding or published its understanding on crypto assets. At that time, it was only Bitcoin, so a cryptocurrency, and why Bitcoin is regulated and how investors should watch out about the risks of uh, such instruments. Uh, but other jurisdictions, uh, like the majority of those jurisdictions within the European economic area, they do not regulate at all cryptocurrencies. So and this is something where we in the European Union, uh, which is not working because in the European Union, we say we have a single market, we have a level playing field where we should regulate the instruments, no matter if it's crypto assets or financial instruments in the same manner. So we do not should not have um, what is called also regulatory arbitrage. So companies going, let's say, to East Europe, like Island or Lithuania, and uh, thinking of that they can make use of those uh, legal framework to um, then act within the European Union because we should have a harmonized approach. So ESMA brought that up in, uh, in its paper at that time, and EBA also brought up something similar, but more in direction of having the same rules when it comes to anti-money laundering. And all of that was um, applied in the fifth anti-money laundering directive, but it was highlighted that we need not just for money laundering, but also for the regulation in general, a common understanding within European European economic area. And this is how the Mika was produced. And the Mika going forward um, is going to have a harmonized framework uh, of crypto assets. So crypto assets are going to be regulated in the same way, in the same manner. And um, because the Mika is a regulation, it is going to apply directly to the whole European economic area, unlike the MIFID, which is an directive which would need to be implemented into national law, but the regulation MICA is applicable directly, so it does not need any implementation. Um, and so we're going to have this MICA being applicable for the whole European economic area directly, uh, once it's effective and once it's fully applicable. Um, and it's going to cover crypto assets, and this is the interesting part, what is crypto assets? And uh, looking at crypto assets, we can say we have two kinds of crypto assets. We have the um, utility token and the currency token as one bucket. And then we have the stable coins on the other hand in the second bucket, which is the e-money token and asset reference token. So we have stable coins and all other crypto assets within the Mika. And so we're going to have for the crypto asset service providers, so CASP uh, regulation on how to deal with this crypto asset. So they would normally need a license to provide the services and activities within the European economic area. Uh, this is for, for the ongoing services. And we have also some regulation for those who want to issue 
a new token. So who want to issue a token within a European economic area, who want to generate like a uh, token generating event on ICO, on STO. And for those, we're going to have some uh, mandatory documentation requirement, which is very similar to prospectus regime, which we already have in a MIFID, uh, yeah, in a MIFID catalog. But here it's called white paper. So we're going to have a white paper requirement for any token issuance. So no matter if we are in a first bucket, so utility token on cryptocurrency, or we are in a second bucket, uh, the stable coins, for any of those crypto assets going to be issued once we have the Mika, there's going to be a very strict rule on the white paper. Okay, yeah, that's gonna that's going to be interesting. But hopefully, if it also filter out uh, some scam projects and uh, not so honest <laughs> initiatives. Um, yeah, thank you for explaining um, that in more depth and what Mika is and what it applies to. Since the stable coins have become quite the topic since the crash earlier this year with Terra, and from what they read, actually that um, that part of Mika came as a result from from the crash and how it affected. From somewhere I read that it actually destroyed around 40 billion in assets of, of people globally. So it did leave a really big impact on the industry and on the, the investors. Could you please tell us how does uh, Mika regulate stablecoins? Yeah, so the stablecoin regulation is the one of the core goals of the Mika. And going back to Again, some history lesson. <laughs> so going back, uh, those of you who remember, we had Facebook who uh, planned to um, initiate the um, the Libra or the Calibra wallet and the Libra coins within, uh, um, yeah, at that time it was Switzerland, but the goal was to distribute it in Europe. Um, and then that became Diem. Um, so this was the goal of the of the Facebook, um, yeah, of the, of the group of Facebook companies, uh, and which was a very big group of uh, companies and corporates uh, participating on that project, uh, which raised lots of concerns um, with the regulators uh, because uh, the regulators were afraid that if we do not have any kind of regulation for this kind of stable coins, um, the market, uh, the capital market may be affected by, by this um, big project because the, the, the companies which were involved there uh, were like really major companies. And at that time, we didn't see anything such major project coming. So this was for the regulators already some, some, some warning. So, uh, and if you talk to some of the uh, politicians uh, active in the Mika, uh, if they are honest to you, they will tell you that Mika was actually planned to being um, drafted and implemented to stop uh, Facebook and uh, p similar players who want to uh, issue a private stablecoin, which may have negative effect on the capital market. Um, and in the end, they succeeded, we have to say, because Facebook has left uh, Switzerland and with that um, the European market and went back to the US market and is now planning to issue something which is more in line with uh, US interests. Um, but uh, yeah, so looking at the stable coins, as I said in the beginning, we have two kinds of stable coin regulations inside Mika. We have the e-money token and we have the asset reserve token. So, and very simply 
differentiating these two types of token. The e-money token is um, a token which is referencing to one underlying, which must be a fiat currency. So it could be um, an e-money token like on euro or e-money token on the US dollar. However, once you have, besides just one fiat currency, a second asset within the bucket, uh, so let's say you have the US dollar and you have some US bond, then you get to US tether. This is not an e-money token under Mika. This would be an asset reference token. So anything more than just one asset, which is referenced to the token, would be an asset reference token. And so the e-money token and the asset reference token, they are two different categories within the Mika because different rules apply to it. So in a nutshell, you can say that the asset reference tokens, they are more heavily regulated compared to the e-money token. So it doesn't mean that e-money token is not regulated at all. It is also strong regulated, but not as strong as the asset reference token. And the second nutshell or the second takeaway, if you have an e-money token, which is referencing to the euro currency, it is easier regulated than an e-money token, which is referencing to a non-EU currency, for example, US dollar. Uh, so this is something for those who are planning to issue a stablecoin and to offer that to the European economic area, they should take these two, yeah, two, two nutshells uh, with them and to think on how to structure the stablecoin. Uh, that could pose quite a roadblock and an issue and, I mean, and a challenge when people are launching projects as such. And I had some talks with founders who are looking to initiate a stablecoin and was like, well, help but Mika, right? Like take, take two steps back and make sure that you know, in a year or two, you're not going to encounter like a really big problem when it comes to having actually U.S.-based investors. And of course, we know that U.S. is not really crypto friendly. So that adds additional challenges and weights on the project. And would you share with us how like the, some of the existing projects that do have stable coins and that are backed either by U.S. dollar or a different currency, so what measures they can take in order to be compliant and to be able to have EU-based investors? Do they have to open an additional entity or do they need to go through uh, additional checks? Um, how they can save their projects and uh, stay um, within EU? So, yeah, mm, there are actually three um, ways on how to continue a stable coin related business. Um, I mean, first of all, the, the first thing which I'm saying is, is, is does not differentiate between if you are an issuer of a stable coin or if you are a distributor or someone who is, who is providing services in relation to stable coins. So the first thing what I'm telling you is the so-called reverse solicitation. And reverse solicitation means that if your business is outside of the European economic area, however, you have users, you have investors, you have clients who are uh, domiciled or located within a European economic area, you are allowed to provide your services to such users, clients slash investors, if the request to provide the services is coming um, actively from the users. So it is not coming from the, the service provider, um, but it's coming from the users. So it must be must coming from the users, the request to get served. This is called reverse solicitation. Uh, on the other hand, uh, reverse solicitation would not apply 
if a company is, let's say, located on the Bahamas or somewhere else, uh, is having its web page or app application and is directly um, targeting European investors, such as um, using a language which is only used in, uh, in, in, in the European Union, such as German, let's say, um, using um, um, wording, uh, which may lead to the assumption that uh, you're, you're really targeting German users, such as having benefits for, for Austrians, Germans, uh, Swiss people. Um, it becomes tricky if you use like an international language such as English uh, or let's say Spanish, because uh, it's also spoken outside the European economic area. Um, however, for example, if you use uh, influencers or some others who have a big target group or a big follower group uh, within a European economic area, and you use such influencers and tell them, oh, here's some influencer code, use it on your YouTube videos or somewhere else, and who's ever using your, this influencer code to register on our platform, you will get some, I don't know, some kickbacks. Um, this is also not allowed. I mean, the German regulator is checking out YouTube and is checking out social media. And if they see influencers who have a massive uh, German follower group, uh, and then they're using inf influencer codes from, let's say, an exchange or for some platform, then the German regulator would assume that you are actively targeting the German market by doing so. The same counts if you are promoting or sponsoring an event, which is inside the European economic area. So all of that uh, would not be considered as reverse solicitation. And then you would need to have a license or some regulation. So this come, brings us to the second part. So if you're really actively uh, interested to provide your services inside the European economic area, we need to differentiate between uh, issuing a token, like issuing a stablecoin, or providing services to an existing stablecoin. If you're issuing a stablecoin only, you do not need to have a presence inside the European economic area. You can do it outside. You only need a white paper. And you need to take that white paper and you need to um, give it to one of the uh, um, regulators within the European economic area. And you need to notify the white paper and get some acceptance on your white paper. And then you're allowed to distribute your token within the European economic area. If you use an existing token, an existing stablecoin, you want to provide uh, services to that stablecoin. Let's say you have an uh, exchange token, which gives you some uh, possibility to use it on an exchange as a means of payment. Um, then you need to have at least um, a legal person. So you need to have a company inside of the European economic area. It, it does not have to be in Germany. It could be in Luxembourg or somewhere else. So wherever you think it's uh, benefiting your business. Um, and this company needs then to apply for a license. And, uh, and then uh, um, this is a license application procedure. Uh, it takes some time. Once you have the license, you're allowed to provide the services, not just in that jurisdiction where you applied, but you can provide your services to the whole, to the entire European economic area by passporting your license to the whole European economic area. So I hope that this uh, complex topic was uh, put uh, some way that it's uh, digestible for the listeners. Yeah, it's really great. And thank you for clarifying uh, the, the relationship between like actually issuing a stable coin and providing services. So I think that's a very important distinction for the investors, for projects looking to launch and just about anyone 
in the space. And it's really interesting what you said about the, the influencers. So basically, if I understood well, if let's say I'm an influencer and I get paid and I have that promo code, right? So then the German government would have insights into that and would and would treat it differently. But what if I'm just like an influencer that found that ran the project, I really liked it, and then I decided to talk about it on my YouTube channel. Does the same rule apply there or it's not considered uh, as to fall under the stable coin regulation? Yeah, so the same would not apply in, in that uh, situation. So there are lots of influencers who, who like to talk about some projects, some crypto projects. So if those influencers do not get any kickback, so they do not get any benefits from the company, such as um, promo code, referral code, or maybe some direct payment, um, then uh, this is not um, related or connected to the to the company itself. So the company cannot do anything against that if some influencer starts talking about the company. So that's fine. But as soon as the as there's a link between the influencer and the company, such as a promo code, or someone knows exactly that the influencer is maybe getting some payments uh, by that uh, company, then um, any activity of those influencers would relate or would be seen as activities of that company. Great. Thank you for uh, explaining that. And one of the most common questions when it comes to Mika is whether Mika regulates NFTs. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting one, um, the NFT regulation under Mika. So uh, putting it really uh, uh, like the result already there is that Mika is not going to cover really a, a real non-fungible token. And when I'm saying a real non-fungible token, I'm talking about the fungibility. So it has to be non-fungible. And non-fungible uh, is not that easy to define. I mean, you can look at the technical aspect of the token. For example, is it an ERC-20 or is it an ERC-721 token if it's on Ethereum? So in ERC-20, as a standard, which uh, provides that the tokens can be swapped or exchanged against another ERC-20. Uh, however, an ERC721 is a standard which is used specially for NFTs because it is unique. So it's a, it's the 721 token cannot be replaced by another 721 token. So this is the idea from the technical background. But it's not sufficient just to look at the technical standard. You would also need to look at what is a token really covering. For example, you can have a token which is thousand times issued, so an NFT which is thousand times issued, and all thousand tokens are the same. They're exactly the same. So maybe they have the same image and they have the same rights covered with the token. However, they are all issued on an ERC721. So even though they are issued on an ERC721, which is a unique technical standard, the content or the rights covered by the token, they're all the same. And that, in that uh, sense, you would say from a European regulator's perspective, they belong to a collection and therefore they're again covered by the Mika. So the Mika should not cover non-fungible in means of technical being unique in a technical sense be unique, but also from the right sense. So from the sense of what is covered with the token should be unique. Uh, so the other example would be the Board Ape Yacht Club NFTs. Uh, these are on an ERC721 and each image which represents, which represented by the token is different. 
So you will not find the same image twice. It's always different. And therefore, I would say in that case, it is really non-fungible and would not be covered by the Mika. And then you're not regulated by the Mika. That's interesting. So it's uh, it's in small details <laughs> of how to how to mitigate some of the potential risks uh, and uh, take into consideration when launching a project an NFT collection. And one of the very important um, elements of Mika is also a regulating market views. Can you tell us a bit more about that? How does uh, Mika address and regulate the market abuse issue? Yes, so uh, for those who are familiar with market abuse regulation and market abuse directive, they know that we have this already in place for MIFID financial instruments. And the reasoning behind having this regulation goes in two directions. One is to um, protect the investors to have um, all the information which is available on the instrument being transparent for all the investors, so having equal information, so not uh, putting any investor uh, in the dark, let's say, and uh, not putting any uh, benefits for some specific people. So therefore, we have some insider trading regulation, which means that people who are inside a group of uh, some persons who have more knowledge should, uh, should publish that knowledge immediately so everyone has this understanding. This is so one side of the regulation when it comes to market abuse regulation. The other side of the regulation is what we see quite often in the crypto uh, market is this pump and dump activity. So you have, let's say, a Telegram channel or Telegram group where people are motivated to invest in a token um, and they do so. And then uh, you see that uh, after some time, this token is dumped because it was all just pushed by some people who had the same interest in pushing the price up of the token, but selling it immediately once the price is up on a, on a market. And such a yeah, pump and dump activity should also be eliminated by the uh, market abuse regulation. So, so the Mika market abuse uh, regulation is very similar to the market abuse regulations, which we already have in MIFID. And if you can just take in a nutshell, these two yeah, main ideas of having same equal rights and understanding for all the market participants and also to uh, limit any scams and pump and dump activities. You already know a lot about this market abuse. Great, thank you. I read that all that inside the trading uh, pump and dump and signaling would actually have to be transparent and the information has to be available to the public that those activities are actually happening within the projects. So there is no false pretending that yes, like this project is so great and popular and everyone is so into it. But in fact, it's just a paid type of um, type of marketing and trading to scale the project and make people interested to, to invest in. And um, earlier this year, I mean, unfortunately, 2022 was experiencing a fair share of crashes. And uh, one of the bigger ones that have really shook the, the whole industry, as you mentioned, was Thera, but it also Celsius and the unfortunate event that followed, especially in terms of um, the investors' assets. How did Mika respond to that? And uh, what? how does it regulate the consumers and the protection of the consumers? 
Yes, so Mika is doing a lot in that uh, direction. I mean, the, the consumer protection part is was one of the main goals of Mika. And so there are the different, um, different ways in how Mika is trying or aiming to give more consumer protection. One is the transparency part. Transparency means that um, the documentation which is used, for example, a white paper um, has to be uh, true and not misleading. And also any um, liability language used inside the white paper, which says, for example, we do not warranty or guarantee any outcome. And this is just an experiment or whatever is not allowed. You would, you would be liable as a company for whatever you put in your white paper. So this is something which Mika is uh, giving in the first place. The second thing which Mika is doing is um, looking at the, um, yeah, the, the companies, the service providers, um, it gives some obligations to the companies. I mean, for example, to the crypto custodians, there is going to be a rule of the segregation of, of funds. So we've seen that with, with Coinbase, where they made their report towards the US authorities that the funds of the Coinbase users, they may not be protected in case of insolvency because there's a wallet where both assets, the assets of Coinbase and users are getting mixed up. So we're going to have the segregation rule for the custodians coming. And this is a very strong segregation rule, not just in theory, but also throughout the whole operation of the custodian. So not just when having it in cold storage, but also in hot storage and also when you trade, uh, there must be always uh, throughout a segregation of the assets. So this is one thing. The second thing which is coming for the uh, operators, uh, for the CASPs, is the uh, obligation to keep reserves. And this uh, keeping reserves, we've seen it with FTX recently, is very important because there must be a balance between the assets you have under management or the assets you have, um, you're providing services to and the assets of the company, which is the equity of the company and also a reserve on top of the equity of the company, which may be used in case something is going wrong. I mean, we see, for example, Binance, which is using um, it, its own funds and putting some own reserves um, which is outside of the Mika because the Mika is not there, but they're already trying to do something which goes in that direction. What Mika is going to put as a mandatory rule for all service providers to have some funds available in a, in a specific ratio to the assets under management. So if in case something is going wrong, we can use it. I mean, we have something like that already in place for banks. Banks, for example, they need to have some reserves depending on the type of business, but it's usually between 12 and 19%. Um, on top of the, the, the money they would need to have as their own equity capital. And something like this, we're also going to face for the uh, casts within the Mika. Um, so there, there's much more when it comes to consumer protection, but I think these three examples, they give a good uh, insight, especially when looking at the recent developments like with Celsius or with FTX and others uh, to give a good feeling on how Mika is may uh, undermine such um, risks. Thank you. I mean, I remember also when Celsius crash happened and then uh, you could hear different statements from the CEOs of exchanges. And I remember, remember that moment 
when some of them um, actually did say, if we go under, I mean, your assets are our assets, you, you don't own your own assets. And that got quite a backlash. And then some of them removed those dates with sitting those tweets from their profile because really um, was badly received. I mean, of course, um, and unfortunately, again, we did not have live regulations that can actually prevent these platforms to abuse the investors' uh, property and their assets. So it's great that it's happening, even though many are not very excited about having uniform leg legislation across across EU. Would you also tell us, since um, the regulation is very new in, in this space and depending on the personal feeling and whole relationship towards the industry, what are some of the bad things, to put it that way, when it comes to Mika? In uh, what limitations will Mika actually implement on EU-based businesses and the businesses that are outside the EU, but they do business you know, within EU? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are some things which were discussed also, which, which did not really find their way in the final Mika version and some things which I didn't really like. For example, this um, uh, proof of work uh, limitation. I mean, it was discussed from an environmental perspective. Everyone knows that um, mining Bitcoin has a very high energy consumption and it's because uh, Bitcoins are mined by the proof of work um, um, technique, uh, which is uh, highly energy consuming. Uh, so it was discussed in the beginning uh, or in the middle of the draft of the Mika to not allow to to, to, to use any coins which are uh, mined uh, with proof of uh, work uh, technology. However, or, or luckily, this, uh, this, yeah, this limitation of this rule, this clause was not uh, uh, used anymore in the final version of the Mika, which is now there. Uh, but we are going to have some environmental uh, obligations towards the CASP uh, where they would need to inform the users about the energy, energy consumption of any blockchain uh, use or any blockchain, uh, underlying blockchain of the coins. And then the ESMA is going to publish some paper and the Mika is going to be maybe changed in the future once we have a better understanding of how the energy consumption is really uh, when looking at the coins, because we... I think this is also something we had in the past. We did not really have real good information because there were rumors saying that, yeah, Bitcoin is using as much energy as the whole economy of Sweden or Netherlands. And some others said, no, that's nonsense. Uh, so this is also something which we are now collecting. So we're collecting information. And this is, I think, something also very good what Mika is providing, some time where we collect information and then based on the new information, uh, some, some rules are going to come. And then um, there will be some some uh, information by ESMA published on reverse solicitation, which I already touched on. So it will tell exactly to the foreign companies when are they allowed to provide the services to the European Economic Area and when not. So this is going to be the reverse solicitation paper, uh, most likely published by ESMA in, in respect to Mika. And then we're going to have like also uh, some new understanding when it comes to decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs. 
because those are also not covered within Mika. However, it also says if they are like true and original DAOs, if it's like something which is called, uh, which is calling itself a DAO, but it's not a DAO, then it may be regulated under Mika. And it doesn't really matter if the uh, originators of the DAO or the protocol providers are located outside of the European Union, but the members of the DAO, they're inside of the European Union. So this is something where we also would need to look at, and this is also something uh, where I'm very interested to see what's going to happen, because um, this whole DAO regulation, uh, if it's really outside of Mika, a new regulation will come. And if it's somehow inside Mika, because uh, someone will say, for instance, uh, a DAO is not a DAO if someone holds more than 10% of the token of the DAO, uh, then okay, then you're inside Mika. So and this is something which will develop most likely in the next months. Oh, well, I'm super, I'm super excited <laughs> to see how that's going to evolve because I mean, for example, I had a great chat uh, with a Panamian based lawyer and they basically have that since Panama is getting quite popular for incorporating an entity that represents the DAO and they have that a uh, relation that one person cannot be holder of like more than 20 or 25% of the DAO assets. And one would hope that would never happen actually in a DAO. While in Marshall Islands, one person cannot hold more than 10%. So if they hold more than 10, they fall under certain regulations. If they don't, um, then they're perfectly fine. So it's really interesting to see how, um, is it Mika looking to recognize DAOs as DAOs or to find some sort of uh, like a kind of DAO-like structure? Yeah, so what I heard, uh, so it's just what I heard like uh, from, from the gossips, that uh, when the Mika, I call it Mika 1.0 was final and has passed uh, after the trilogue discussions on the 30th of June, um, there were a group of strong supporters who said we now have to continue we should not stop with the finalization of mika 1.0 we should already think of mika 2.0 and there was strong supporters who said we should uh, draft and do mika 2.0 focusing on DAOs. Uh, and there are some uh, there's another group of of uh, politicians who said uh, yeah let's talk about DAOs, but uh, i don't really know when mika 2.0 is going to come uh, mm -hmm. Because Mika 1.0 uh, is going to be um, published, let's say, in the next uh, months or weeks. But then you have 18 months, which is the time until the Mika becomes fully effective. Plus, you have 18 more months for those who are already CASPs and who would need to do a so-called Mika upgrade. So you have 36 months from the timing when the Mika is published. So this is a time where we will only talk about Mika 1.0. So... and. This is what I also think until Mika 2.0 comes uh, and even the text of Mika 2.0, it will take some time. So a couple of months is very optimistic. Uh, I don't really see so. But now it comes for those who are really like against DAOs and want to have the DAOs regulated, maybe something in between is coming. Maybe some kind of regulation which we have with PRIPS, uh, some, some specific regulations on DAO. Or at least this is the minimum of what I'm expecting. It's a common understanding what is a DAO. And when it when when we talk about DAO, like what is a really a decentralized autonomous organization, we talk about organization and we talk about decentralized. So what is decentralized? Uh, so so 
we, we've seen it with the SEC and I think FinCEN when they were talking about DAOs and they said, okay, um, those who provide the protocols or draft the protocols, they shouldn't be regulated. Um, but those who, who may be uh, running the network and those who are in charge of the token, they may be regulated. And now it comes, they said, okay, uh, when you have a whale, uh, so they didn't really define what a whale is, then it can't be a DAO because someone has the majority. And the majority means 50% plus one. So you have to really have the majority, you have to control. But this is 50% uh, plus one. I think this, this, uh, this, yeah, this, this uh, threshold of 50% is too high. Uh, I say they either would look at the threshold which we now have in the Mika, which is 20%. So we say anyone who's holding more than 20% is, a, is someone with a, a mandatory holding. And if you look at the banking sector, the banking and, and uh, financial uh, service provider sector, it is 10% or more, which is a qualified interest. Uh, so I think it's going to be something between 10 and 20%. So they either choose the 20% or the 10% threshold as an, as an harmonized understanding when we cannot say any longer, any longer this is decentralized. So any, any network which has someone or group of people who work together and hold more than 10% or more than 20%, uh, they would be seen as those who have um, um, similar um, rights or, or obligations as someone who's controlling that network. And therefore you would say that, okay, it's not a DAO anymore. It is, uh, it could be an entity or a company. That's very interesting because how can you prevent someone from being a whale, right? Because if they have enough resources, enough means, I mean, unless you put a cap, but that is, uh, I think we are kind of unfortunately still far ahead of that. And uh, we did have cases in the past and this year when we had extreme cases of 90%, 7% of the vote was, one, was by one person. And it did really bring uh, uh, the issue of centralization and decentralization into question. I think it can definitely help to say to to reduce the issue of wheels, but on the other hand, how do you prevent them? And should the the whole DAO and the whole community be basically punished and seen as a non-decentralized environment because one bad apple? Well, I think it's important to regulate the DAO so the unlimited personal liabilities are removed from the members. However, the regulation itself shouldn't really hinder the growth and the scalability of the projects, rather rather support it and um, offer different types of protection those that are in that are involved so i mean i hope they will at least wait for until mika 3.0 <laughs> to to get uh, to get that part uh well um and thank you very much for explaining all this actually i would go back to that whale issue and uh 50 plus uh one or 20 uh, or more than 20%. Could you comment on how will that, for example, apply to a liquid governance, right? So because in liquid governance, um, the members can delegate their voting power to, uh, to a wallet, to a specific person they trust because they, uh, they've been in the project for a very long time or they have the necessary expertise to vote on that behalf. So how that that impact the, the liquid governance and whether that could put the project in danger. Yeah. So um, we have something like this already in place when we look at the traditional world. So in the traditional world, when you have a stock, stock listed company, so an exchange listed company, 
we have uh, so-called disclosure requirements where you really look at who's holding the shares, who is exercising the voting rights, is someone exercising the voting rights on behalf of someone else. And uh, so we can use the same knowledge we have already from the, from the traditional world. And the knowledge of the traditional world says that um, if you have someone who's exercising the rights, um, is this someone doing it with by its own discretion or is it uh, asked to do so explicitly by the beneficial owner or by the one who is originally owning that right? So if, if I would give my, 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 my rights from the token to you and would say, please exercise it exactly in this way, uh, then uh, one would say, okay, uh, we don't we do not look need to look at Alexa who is exercising the rights, but we need to look at the person behind and look exactly at the interest that person behind is holding. Because if we would look at you, you may have received these instructions by 10, 20, 15 different people, uh, and then you would easily cross that threshold of 10 or 20%. Um, however, in many cases, people say, okay, this is my right, this is my token, do whatever you think is best. So if, if someone is giving you this instruction that you would have the discretion to do whatever you want to do, and then you could use that discretion because you have it, received it from different people, and then the law would say you, as the one who's exercising the rights and you have your own discretion, you should be treated as the one who has may have control or significant influence on the DAO, and therefore you would be regulated, even though you're not the beneficial owner and the rightful owner of the token, but you're exercising the rights. And this is exactly how it works in the traditional world, uh, where people really give away their rights. They maybe even receive some money for that. They give it away and say, I don't care, do whatever you want, uh, as, as long as it's my token. Uh, and then I'm getting some interest because you're exercising the rights on your own interest. Uh, and then they would apply the law and regulation on you because you have discretion. Um, okay, thank you for this. I mean, and usually those that are delegated the voting rights do receive some sort of rewards for for the contribution they're giving to the community and the project, to put it way. And also some projects have validators and they also receive rewards from the community for the fact that they are voting on their behalf and representing their voice. So this will definitely have quite of an impact on how DAOs structure their governance. And um, I have one more question, please. You mentioned that Mika applies in European economic area. However, as we know, Switzerland is not part of um, in the EU or EA. So, and so many projects are actually established in Switzerland because they were one of the first that came with uh, some very crypto friendly um, laws and they're well known to be a tax haven and many projects still today are incorporating entities representing the DAO there. So um, how will Mika affect them? So Mika will affect any company located in Switzerland. Uh, as I discussed in the beginning when I was explaining the worst solicitation. So it means if a company is inside Switzerland um, and is providing the services to to in Switzerland-based investors or users um, and may accept some uh, Europeans because the Europeans, they go on the webpage and they say, I want to participate, then they're allowed to do so. Then Mika is not going to apply. 
But if the Swiss company is only located in Switzerland because uh, the tax uh, environment is very friendly and there are lots of tech, uh, tech experts who help to build up the, the blockchain and so on and so on. Uh, but in fact, uh, 80 or 90% of the users, they are located in Europe. Um, then Mika would apply 100% to that company, forcing that company to have at least a subsidiary inside the European Union and to apply for a Mika license uh, or to immediately stop any activities which are actively provided to the European economic area. So I think this would be the result. So Switzerland is not a good gateway for Mika. Your one would still have to apply. Um, thank you so much for this great talk. I really appreciate taking the time to come on and uh, break down Mika and I learned a lot from you today and I'm sure the listeners have as well. Um, anyone who would like to um, get in touch uh, with Ali would be able to do so using the socials that are provided um, in the description. And thank you everyone for coming on and listening another episode of DAO Today. See you in the next episode. Thank you for watching another episode of DAO Today with Alexa Mill. DAO Today podcast is for educational and thought-provoking purposes only. And nothing said by Alexa or her guests can be construed as legal, business, and or financial advice. Projects mentioned in the episodes are referred to as examples for educational and informational purposes only. It does not constitute any sort of endorsement or promotion. See you in the next episode.